Peter Hill Explains, where I invite you to join the science teaching conversation with me about Charles Darwin, a reading from a coffee table book called The Great Scientist. We've just signed Bambage, and we'll have a bit of time to do Charles Darwin. Few ideas in the history of science have so completely altered the way we see ourselves as Charles Darwin. He's 1809 to, 18, uh, to 1822. Theory that all life, including humans, evolved into its present form through a process of natural selection. Yeah, I suppose I think I can't really find fault with that sentence. It's something a bit jarring about it, but I can't tell what it is. In the century before Darwin was born, scientific observation and the powerful rationality of the Age of Enlightenment were slowly changing the way people looked at the natural world. Or was it? It was no longer considered quite so mysterious and magical. It's sometimes to, it's something to be catalogued, studied and probed with the help of a growing body of scientific knowledge. Perhaps it's a good sentence. Throughout the latter part of the 18th century, botanists built on Lianus's, Linnaeus's work discovering and classifying more and more species of plants around the world. His work was to label them, not classify them. To a less extent, zoologists had done the same thing with animals in the world. Uh, great new botanical gardens such as Kew in London and the zoological gardens were giving tes living testament to the efforts uh, of these new specimen species hunters. Both scientists and theologians began to ask just how all these species had come about and why each seemed so perfectly suited to the environment in which they lived. Fish swimming, uh, fish swimming in the sea, birds flying in the sky and so on. The orthodox view is that to the creationists um, is of the creationists. According to the book of the Genesis of the Bible, quote, God created every creature that moves, every winged fowl, everything that creeps on the face of the earth. So creationists believe, as many still do, that every species was created once by God and that each is perfectly designed by him to suit the conditions in which they lived. In 1802, the theologian William Paley argued in favour of the original design idea uh, with an example. If you found a watch in the desert, you'd surely assume that it had been made by some skilled watchmaker. How much more skilled, then, was the matchmaker who fashioned the human eye? However, some thinkers were beginning to question the idea that all species have been there from the start, unchanging. More and more naturalists were looking at fossils and finding there was a species that often seemed very different from those that live today. Uh, where had those species gone? Or why were so few fossil creatures alive today? I don't... yeah. At the same time, geologists uh, at, such as James Hutton which we have in the book, we're beginning to challenge the orthodox idea that the world was just a few thousand years old, and that all the landscapes had been created in a series of brief catastrophes. The growing minority were arguing the earth was in fact very old, and landscapes had been created along cycles of erosion and upheaval. I'm not quite sure they were, but let's take it. Against this background, more and more thinkers began to argue that the species are not fixed, but have actually changed or evolved throughout time. One of these things was Charles Darwin's grandfather, Erasmus Darwin. Another, and perhaps most famous, was the French uh, naturalist Jean-Baptiste Jean Lamarck. So that was his thing. There was the covert um, <coughs> uh, episodes of extinction and then creation. And now Lamarck said that 
Oh, well, it's seawood. The mark not only developed the picture of how species progressed in personal manner from a single cell organism to a supreme species, mankind, but also suggested how this evolution takes place. He argued that each species has an inner feeling which propels it to ascend the ladder of evolution. He also argued um, that skills which aids survival can be passed on to the next generation and so gradually built up. Giraffe has stretched its neck to reach the highest branches, for instance, would pass on its long necks to the next uh, offspring. Lamarck's idea so shocked those of the orthodox religious views that those championing them were often vilified and sacked from their teaching positions. Even as late as 1840, many scientists, too, found the idea of inheriting acquired characteristics unconvincing, and Lamarck's system hardly began to exp uh, explain how each species is so marvellously adapted to the environment. Darwin's great breakthrough was not the discovery of evolution. Lamarck and others had done that. Uh, he, uh, what he did was work out how exactly, uh, what exactly evolution is and how it happens. His insight was to focus on individuals, not species, and he followed, uh, showed how individuals evolve by natural selection. Natural variation with a group individual means that some will have be better equipped to survive in particular conditions, and if they survive, they will pass on their characteristics to the offspring. Later commentators have characterised the idea as survival of the fittest, but it was never the phrase Darwin, uh, a phrase Darwin himself used. The mechanism explains how all species, including humans, evolved to become well suited to their environment. The young Darwin. Now, I remember. Um, a Christian story about Darwin being an idiot. Darwin was born on the 12th of February 1809 in Shrewsbury, the son of a well-to-do country doctor. Charles was the youngest of the family and the only boy, and throughout his childhood he was doted on by assistants. He was educated at the local public school that was too busy collecting nature specimens, conducting chemistry experiments to shine in class. Oh well, I wish that would be in the school report. Um, Coming along. At the age of 16, he went off to Edinburgh to study medicine like his father, but Darwin found all the operations had too far too gruesome and spent much of his time in the zoologist Robert Grant, a great believer in Lamarck's ideas. Both were avid collectors and spent many days rambling in the Scottish hills looking for plants. Since he was clearly not suited to study medicine, Darwin's father sent him to Cambridge to study divinity at Christ College. There again, Darwin was distracted by another naturalist, the Reverend uh, Professor John Heslow, who indirectly restored, restored Cambridge's botanical gardens after years of neglect. And with Grant, the two of them formed a firm bond that would go on and would often go specimen hunting together. Trip of a Lifetime. In 1830, Henslow was offered the um, post on HMS Beagle, soon due to set to South America, on surveying the ship uh, strip of the Admiralty. Henslow was unable to go, but offered the job to the young Darwin instead. At first, his father refused permission, but he relented after strenuous efforts by the daughters. I will use that last. The Beagle changed voyage uh, was to be, quite literally, a trip of the lifetime. See the box. <coughs> Initially uh, meant to take two years, it actually lasted over five. By the time Darwin came back, he was a changed man. Not only had he gathered enough data about species around the world to last him a lifetime, 
but he had learned enough to close, uh, by close observation of extraordinary range of wildlife he saw at the start, sowing the seeds of this theory of evolution. Nevertheless, Darwin was never a hasty man. It took him many years of patient thought and study before his theory was ready for publication. So I think there's Newton holding onto it, this idea of, of you know, uh, holding onto an idea. Fame and marriage. I think his wife was very Christian, so he just didn't want to upset her. Fame and marriage. In the meantime, he found himself quite a celebrity when he returned to London. For Henslow had been giving lectures based on specimens and notes Darwin had sent back while sailing around the world. He was appointed a fellow to the Geological Society and invited to join an exclusive gentleman's club at the Athenaeum, elected to the Fellowship of the Royal Society. Yet he was never one to seek the limelight, and over the next few years he spent much of his time quietly making notes to develop his ideas on the species in question, building up data, visiting zoos, I think he did um, seashells or something like that, uh, taking plant reeds, naturalists, birders, anyone who might give him some more background information. Although he loved the quiet, studious life, he also began to feel the need for companionship. And in uh, uh, 15, uh, 1839, the 20-year-old to marry his cousin Emma. Having carefully weighed the pros and cons, um, it proved to be a happy marriage, and the couple soon moved to Down House near Bromley in Kent, and remained there for the rest of their lives. Darwin was never in robust health, it may have caught some tropical disease on the big voyage, but he was well looked after and downhouse by Emma and continued building up his ideas of evolution. The breakthrough. Isn't that lovely? Okay. The breakthrough. Although Darwin's ideas mostly grew by slow accumulation, there was a eureka moment when he <coughs> read the essay on the principle of population by Thomas Malthus. In the essay, written in 1798, Malthus argued that populations both humans and animals will always multiply until they exceed the amount of food available, at which point the population will crash, only for the process to start again. Darwin is excited. Quote, it, uh, it at once struck me that under these circumstances, favourable variations tend to be preserved, and unfavourable ones um, uh, to be destroyed. The result would be the formation of a new species. I had last got these theory. Uh, uh, I had last got a theory uh, by which to work. Now it is um, interesting. So the other flip side of the coin is that um, to survive the crash, you need excess capacity, and perhaps our intellect uh, and a lot of this, the way that we run human relations, uh, to store the excess capacity um, yet though he had a theory he kept it very much to himself indeed he soon embarked on 10 years work writing a treatise on a single species of barnacle which is described as uh, Mr. Arthur Barnus uh, an enormous coiled penis uh, it's an enormous coiled penis uh, he might have carried on this way if the bombshell had not dropped suddenly in his desk on September 1958. So I want to do a barnacle with a huge penis, much a penis much longer than it, than its own self. It's pretty amazing. But barnacles were really interesting because they were the scourge of the navy. You couldn't sail anywhere before your ships got 
over Darwin. The, uh, the rival, the bombshell, was a letter by Alfred Wallace, a young naturalist, uh, then lying ill with malaria in Maluka Islands in Indonesia. Wallace outlines the theory of evolution by natural selection, which corresponds almost exactly with Darwin's own. I never saw a more remarkable coincidence, uh, Darwin later commented. Darwin talked to his friend, famous geologist Charles Lyell, who had the book, and the botanist uh, Joseph Hooker, and the philosopher T.H. Huxley, and together they arranged for Darwin's and Wallace's ideas to be presented together, making it clear that Darwin had developed his ideas 12 years previously. <laughs> Spurred into action, Darwin wrote the book uh, The Origins of Species, in which he outlined his idea and gave wealth and supporting evidence gathered from the Beagle voyage and subsequent research. It was a sensation, and the first edition of 1,250 copies sold out on the day of publication, on the 24th of November, 1959. The Great Debate. Some people immediately embraced the idea, seeing how it explained a huge amount about the natural world. Huge! Uh, others uh, commended it uh, as an affront to God, because nowhere did Darwin's idea leave room for biblical creation. Heated discussions began to take place around the dining table uh, and debating chambers across England. Now, I think there was a pro-evolution pamphlet which got completely lapooned and that, that frightened in um, Darwin. The most famous encounter was between Darwin's friends Huxley and the Bishop Soapy Sam Wilberforce. At one point in the debate, Wilberforce challenged Huxley to say whether or not his grandfather's side, or his grandmother's side, had dissembled from an ape. But this was a cheap jibe. It cost all the force um, uh, victory. Turning neatly around, Huxley argued, precisely, seriously enough, uh, to carry the day. This was the picture across the country of the Darwinists, as they came to be called, gradually won more and more people to their cause. A major setback occurred in 62, when the Scottish physicist William Thompson, later called Kelvin, estimated the age of the Earth scientifically. Kelvin declared the Earth could be no longer than 40 million years old, and possibly only 20 million years. His calculations were based on how long it would take the Earth interior to cool down to its current temperature, and the origin of modern state. This was a real blow, because Alan's theory depended on the Earth being much older. Turned out that Kelvin was mistaken about how fast the Earth is cooling. Further calculations show the world is over 4 billion years old. Well, no, there is actually, it's not cooling down, there's a heat source. Now, it's very interesting that no scientist has been involved who edited this. And as such, you ask questions, why do they have no scientists editing this? What is it? What are they trying to do? What is their real agenda? Because a scientist will tell you that the Earth is hot due to radioactive decay. It's amazing. Human descent. In the meantime, Darwin, who kept quiet, uh, quietly out of the debate in Down House, wrote The Descent of Man, 1871, in which he explained how the theory of evolution was applied to the evolution of mankind from apes. In his famous passage, Darwin wrote, A man with all his qualities still bears bold frame in descentable strike of his lowly origin. Darwin went on developing his ideas, particularly in relation to the humans, for the rest of his life. In, 19, in 1872, at the age of 63, he published an important book on how emotions and expressions might have evolved, entitled Origin of Expressions and Emotions in Man and Animals. 
By now, the long years of poor health and hard study were taking their toll. He died on the 19th of April, 1882, aged 73, and he was wildly mourned. He was buried with the honour in Westminster Abbey, his coffins carried amongst others by his friend and champion, T.H. Huxley. Isn't that amazing? So, it's supposed to be a box. No, that's all for Darwin. Thanks a lot for listening. Another story comes to a close. It's been a pleasure sharing this moment in time with you. May you discover truly amazing things, understand them and tell others. Thanks for listening.